Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Good morning, David. I am great, thank you. And we are joined for the second week in a row by one of our, our star PhD students, although it's not actually, I guess, our, depending on the hour, hour, a, a PhD student here at the University of Edinburgh, uh, Sarah Thompson. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And yes, we, we need to make clear, David, so Sarah is a PhD student in American history, history. but she's not supervised right, by, by, by us. us. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> As opposed to last week when we had James, who is supervised by us. So, yes, yes, yes. All kinds of things. So Actually, let's, let's, let's get this on the record then. Sarah, who are your supervisors? Uh, so my primary supervisor is Robert Mason, and then I'm also supervised by Fabian Hilfrich here at Edinburgh and Daniel Scroop, who's at the University of Glasgow. Oh, right, because you're one of those... Joint PhD students, right? Yeah. Can, can you actually say something about that? Oh, yeah. Um, so I actually, I did my undergraduate degree here at Edinburgh, then went to Glasgow for my master's. And when I was preparing PhD applications, um, I had hoped to come back to Edinburgh, but Dan was my master's supervisor. And they figured since it's, it's encouraged now to get cross-institutional supervision, to get sort of the best fit of supervisors for topics, um, that, yeah, my former undergrad supervisor, Fabian, my master supervisor, and my new supervisor, Robert, like, we could all just be one big team. So that's been really lovely, actually. That's pretty cool. Excellent. So what is your PhD on? Um, so my PhD looks at the legacy of President Ronald Reagan, but my focus is on the efforts within the White House to start thinking about his legacy before he left office. Um, so I look a lot at people like the um, the Office of Public Affairs, the Office of Communications, his chief of staff, um, speechwriters, and look at what they were thinking about what they wanted President Reagan's future legacy to be, if that makes sense. Um, so and then how that sort of legacy project played out into Bush's presidency and then into the nineteen nineties. So, so before we talk about that, can we? Uh, I want to ask you a question similar to what we asked James last week, which was. Uh, how did you, as a British student, a British person, uh, get interested in American history? Why this topic? Um, well, this would be nice for you guys, because I did my undergraduate degree here, um, and had I took American History too, which was the big survey course, and so Frank was my first American History lecturer, and then David, and it's a really, really popular course, I think, just for everyone who does a history undergraduate degree at Edinburgh does American History 2 or did American History 2 and enjoyed it and then I went on study abroad to the University of Virginia in my third year and they had such a huge American History department you could take classes on absolutely anything and they had a whole class just on the War of 1812 which really blew my mind um, so yeah I lasted went, almost as long as the war <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went over to UVA and had an amazing time and while I was there um, one of the professors helped me apply for funding to visit any library of my choice um, and I picked the Reagan Library, bizarrely, and then haven't really looked back since then. And why did you pick the Reagan? I mean, you had choices. Uh, why did you pick Reagan other than maybe sunny California? Honestly, I didn't have a good answer to the question. I was sort of put on the spot. Like, if you could go to any library, which library would you, would you go to? And I had done an undergrad presentation in American History 2 on Reagan and had been looking at the fact they were declassifying a lot of like new primary sources and I thought oh that's kind of cool like the thought of being the first researcher to open a box that has left the White House like 30 years beforehand and so when this professor at UVA said where would you want to go if you could go anywhere I said oh the Reagan library would be cool because you know I might get to be the first person to open a box um and he <laughs> said well I was thinking more like Richmond or somewhere than California but if you want to go to California we we have the 
the budget for that. So I had no idea where the Reagan Library was. I didn't know it was in California, um, but that doesn't hurt either. Neat. Okay. And, and when you opened that first box, what did you find? Um. Oh, well, I was looking at the U.S. invasion of Grenada because they'd recently released the audio conversation of Margaret Thatcher basically telling Reagan off um, for invading Grenada. He asked her permission or he said, you know, what do you think if I send troops into Grenada? And she said, no, absolutely not. And then he said, well, too late. I've already sent them. I was assuming you'd go along with it. Um, and I think he phoned her and said, you know, I'm really sorry. This is really awkward. I just assumed you'd be fine with it. And you're clearly not fine with it. And so I'd heard that conversation. So that was the first stuff that I was, I was looking at. I got the transcript of that phone call. We, we did an episode a long time ago about presidential libraries. What was your what was your first impression of of the Reagan Library? Um, because they're very weird places. They're both like research centers, but they're also kind of propaganda machines. They are. It's really strange because the reading room is fairly non-partisan. Like everyone's sort of there because they want. Like the archivists are very sort of non-biased. But they said to me that like, if you want to go into the museum, we'll we'll give you a ticket for the museum, so you don't have to pay. But don't insult President Reagan when you're in the museum space, when you speak to, you know, any of the staff over there, you're going to have to pretend to like Reagan or they're going to, you know, have questions about your project. <laughs> um, and I, it was really strange. I told someone that I was researching the US invasion of Grenada and they're like, oh, you mean when we liberated that poor tiny Caribbean island that wasn't going to stand up if it wasn't for President Reagan? And I was like, well, I'm actually researching the controversy that, that came about because of that invasion. Like, well, you know, sometimes you just have to do controversial things when you're a great figure like President Reagan. And it was very strange. I don't know whether you saw this when you were there, but I think one of the things they do for school groups when they go to the Reagan Library is they have them sort of role play the decision to invade Grenada. And if you do exactly what Reagan did, then you get a positive outcome. But, like, you fail the simulation if you do anything else. Um, they didn't have that when I was there, but one thing they do have is this interactive game, and it's like it's kind of like Monopoly, but it's like Reaganomics Monopoly, and you can't <laughs> lose money no matter how much money you spend. Because I stood there and tried to bankrupt myself, um, and you can't. Oh. Um, no matter if you buy the expensive car and go to the expensive college, you'll still end up with more money at the end of the game than you started with, which I thought was very strange. <laughs> That's great. So. What kind of source material are you using? Because uh, David and I are used to writing about uh, long-deceased people, but uh, Ronald Reagan hasn't been dead that long. Um, well, you're young, so it probably seems like a long time to you. Uh, but uh, presumably some of the subjects you're talking about, or some of your sources are still alive? Uh, yeah, so I was originally in the sort of pre-COVID times planning that it would just be an archival project and then I arrived in the US in February 2020 to be there for seven months and lasted I think five weeks before I ended up coming back so I've you know I'm eking out the archival stuff that I have a lot more than I expected to um, and so I have ended up just in the last sort of few months arranging oral histories with um, some of the people that I have looked at their papers in the Reagan library to sort of fill in gaps um, which is really surreal because there's some of them that I've looked at their papers from back in 2016 when I went over as an undergrad and I'm like, oh, I'm speaking to you in real life. I'm emailing this person that, you know, has just been a name on a collection of files for years. 
Are you finding them cooperative? I mean, some of them are 40 years having, you know, out of office now, I guess, or out of their, their posts. So are they forthcoming? I have heard anecdotally that some people, um, I'm not sure why, but protect the Republicans can be really um, reluctant to do interviews with researchers. But actually, everyone I've spoken to has been really willing to talk to me, um, either some on, some off the record, um, but even the ones who've requested off the record have said, you know, if there are any quotes that I would like to use um, to let them know and they'll clear um, anything um, within reason that they, they talk to me about. So that's that's been incredible. And, and I appreciate that you have to be careful in answering this question. Have they said anything to you off the record that you've thought, oh, wow, that's juicy or, or that's shocking? <laughs> any wow moments like that that you obviously can't elaborate upon? Have they happened? Um, not really. I mean, there was, it's kind of strange. Um, I think you have to be quite sort of deferential to President Reagan, like the people who are still wanting to talk about President Reagan sort of 40 years down the line are talking about it because they're, they're very big fans, um, and have a lot of respect for him. And it's not that I don't respect Reagan, but you do have to sort of, I think, be quite deferential in a way that I wasn't really expecting. Um, like Americans take their former presidents really seriously in a way that I find a little bit surprising. You and I both kind of do research on figures who are not uncontroversial. <laughs> so yours on Reagan, I've worked a lot on, on Jefferson, as you know. When you tell people publicly that what you're working on, or even when you speak on it, people often assume that you are a either an admirer of that individual or a defender of them or a mouthpiece for them? Do you, or have you, have you found that to be... Sorry, I shouldn't... I'm putting words in your mouth. Have, I found that to be the case. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, absolutely. Um, one, of the, one of the older PhD students a couple of years above me um, told me about six months after I met him, he's like, I decided I was going to hate you when I saw your Ronald Reagan coffee cup in the PhD study space. Uh, he's like, and then it turned out you don't actually... You know, you're not on the far right and so therefore I can be your friend and I found that really strange I was like you looked at the the coffee cup that I have on the on the study desk and decided that I was going to be sort of some mad Reagan fanatic which I found really weird you could be a mad anti-Reagan fanatic as well well I but I find with other topics you know if I researched the holocaust no one would assume that it's because I'm pro-holocaust yeah um but I, I found that yeah, it can be strange that people jump to conclusions where, where, you know, I sit on the political spectrum based on the people that I study. Do you think being British helps you in doing this project, especially if you're doing oral history and talking to uh, figures from the Reagan administration? Being an outsider, I guess, do you think that helps you? When I was applying for PhDs, um, one of the potential supervisors I spoke to um, said that my greatest asset not just was the fact that I was British, but was the fact that I was too young to remember when Reagan was president. He's like, you don't have the knee-jerk reaction to the 1980s that scholars 20 or 30 years older than you do. He's like, and that's a real, that's a real positive. You should cling to the fact that, you know, you have a little bit of distance, um, partly from being British, but also from being a bit younger, that, you know, people who lived through the Reagan years won't necessarily have. Um, I hope that's been true. Um, so how successfully did Reagan and his acolytes uh, craft his image for posterity? Um, 
One of the problems I have is I think they sort of changed their mind halfway through the project on what they wanted him to be remembered <laughs> for. So in the earlier stuff that I've looked at, this would be around the Iran-Contra um, scandal. They tend to really want to focus on the economy and Reaganomics and then sort of towards the sort of late 1988, um, after the sort of meetings with Gorbachev have gone quite well done. Oh, actually, maybe maybe we do want Reagan to be remembered for his foreign policy after all. Um, so that's something I'm sort of grappling with, is why they sort of changed their mind midway through this sort of three-year well, project. Do they, you know, when do they start thinking about his legacy? Because, I mean, I get the impression that now presidents are thinking about, you know, their legacy even before they take the oath of office. When, when did the Reagan team start to sort of seriously consider what his legacy would be and what it would look like? Um, one of the arguments that I'm sort of hoping to make in the thesis is that the Reagan team were in quite an unusual position. Reagan was the first two-term president since Eisenhower, and so they had this longer window, um, or they had their sort of 30 years, and the relationship between the president and the press and the president and the public had changed a lot. Um, I think, between the sort of 50s to the 1980s. And so they had opportunities to think about the legacy in, in different ways. Government had grown. They had the resources to sort of pay attention to these projects or to, you know, start projects thinking explicitly about the legacy in a way that other administrations haven't. And I can see you both frowning. And I know that no. some of my supervisors, or one of my supervisors... Those are just our faces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my supervisors pushed back on this a little bit, and he said, well, you know, Lyndon Johnson was taking donuts down to his presidential library to try and get people to go there. And mm. Richard Nixon was, you know, obviously very invested in his own image. But I think within the White House, some of what they're doing um, in terms of... Um, like they made this thing called the Reagan Record, which is basically this massive like ring binder file of everything you have to say or you should say if you're questioned on any of the following issues. And so they had sort of these are our party lines on civil rights, these are our party lines on um the economy or on foreign relations to make sure everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet. Um so I think those sorts of smaller things that are going on are are unusual and that's something that I think has maybe continued. I'm interested, Sarah, that you mentioned Eisenhower, because in thinking about Eisenhower's legacy, he's the immediate two-term predecessor to Reagan. Uh, yeah, and, and Nixon. Well, he didn't yeah. finish two terms, right. sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. So I mean, two full terms. Yeah. Okay. And in discussing legacies, Nixon's is complicated. That's by, true, yes. <laughs> by, the way, by the way it ended. Um, so, so if you take Eisenhower as an analogue, by the 80s, and certainly since the 80s, Eisenhower ends up being a bit of a kind of nonpartisan. Yeah, his legacy is nonpartisan or above partisanship, it seems mm. to me. Uh, whereas what we've seen with Reagan's legacy in the past 30 years is, if anything, he's become more partisan, not through anything he did or even his the, the kind of people you're researching have done, but he's such an important totemic figure for certain people on the right. Hmm. Whether it's wanting to name things after him, or I mean, you know more about this than we do. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, so he he seems to have become more partisan, whereas Eisenhower is less so. Would you agree with that? And if so, can you explain it? Um, I wish I could explain it. It's it's one of the things that made me interested in Reagan's legacy. Actually, it was the twenty sixteen 
presidential election, the primaries, seeing basically every Republican candidate, because they used the Reagan Library as a venue for one of the debates, and basically every candidate said they were going to be the next Ronald Reagan, even though they disagreed on all the other issues. They all wanted to be the next Reagan, and I thought, well, you can't all be the next Reagan, surely, because you're all over the place politically. Um, and I, yeah, I found that strange. I thought, well, why do you all so desperately want to be able to associate yourself with Reagan? Is it just because he was the last sort of successful, popular Republican president? Or is there something more to it? And I think, yeah, the efforts of organisations like the Young America's Foundation to preserve the ranch and then they've just purchased his boyhood home because they want young conservatives to have the opportunity to go to places that were important in Reagan's life. Um, I think is really interesting. Like he is this larger than life figure. And I don't really fully understand why, other than they just want a popular figure to to remember and emulate. Because of course George W. Bush, for example, was a two term president. Yeah. More recently for a, you know, he was the president, of course, during 9-11 and was incredibly popular in the immediate aftermath of that. His popularity was not maintained like Reagan's, mm -hmm. but, but, or, but not, you don't, there's not a wing of the Republican Party that's, that's saying, there aren't people saying, I'm going to be the next George W. Bush. Mm. But there are people hearkening back yeah. 20 years before that. Yeah. Um, I just want, you know, when they say that, they probably think they mean something. And there are people that are speaking to think they mean something. What did what did the what is your what is your inference about what kinds of things are are Reagan esque that they are evoking? Um, that's a good question. I had actually considered, and I won't be able to because it would be too much for a PhD, comparing the sort of Reagan legacy project that I'm looking at. Mm to the sort of Reagan myth-making that mm. ran through the 90s, right. and particularly like around the time of Reagan's funeral in 2004. Um, because I don't think the vision of Reagan that they had in the White House is necessarily the vision of Reagan that people have nowadays. Um, the sort of Reagan is the Cold War hero, Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. Um, the Reagan they want to put on coins and stamps and stuff. Um, I'm not sure where that's come from. There's a whole body of scholarship, I think, coming out now around this sort of Reagan myth-making of how we've got from Reagan, who was popular but not, you know, beloved by all Americans by any stretch, I don't think, to the Reagan that all Republicans sort of want to emulate. So when did the divergence happen? Did it happen in 2004 or did it, does it go back before that? The, the divergence between the image that you're studying that Reagan and his, his circle wanted to perpetuate or create and, and, and uh, preserve, and the, as you say, this kind of popular myth. Um, I think it's certainly happening in the, or by the 90s. Um, it didn't help that Reagan really didn't have a long post-presidency. Mm. He withdrew from public life fully in 1994, but even before that, he, when he retired, he was quite sort of, I'm retiring, I'm 70. Eight seventy nine, and I'm gonna go and enjoy my retirement on my ranch. Um, Joe Biden's <laughs> <laughs> True, um, but the, yeah, but and there were health issues yeah, as well. Yeah, he he yeah he announced his Alzheimer's diagnosis in nineteen ninety four and didn't appear publicly after that. So I guess he was in a sort of strange limbo of being alive, but also not. Uh, like Nancy Reagan took over. Um, some of the things, like Nancy Reagan was the one you went to if you wanted to use Ronald Reagan's name on something. 
Um, so some guy tried to found Ronald Reagan University and Nancy Reagan had to be the one to tell him, no, you can't. Um, but I don't know if Reagan's sort of absence in the post-presidency created a climate where people could sort of, you know, um, make Reagan whoever they wanted him to be for their mm. own political ends. How active was he in Reagan himself in, in trying, you know, when he was president, trying to sort of craft this legacy and craft this memory? How much was Nancy involved or was it people sort of on the periphery who were doing more of the, the work? This is something that I've had issues with in my project that Reagan feels conspicuously absent sometimes. Um, and I'm not the sure... The people who were during the Reagan administration had the same feeling, so... Uh. <laughs> but I... You know, I've been looking at the planning for the Reagan library and they said, well, what do you think of this site in Simi Valley? And it was, well, Nancy Reagan can go look at it and Reagan will fly over it in a helicopter and say, well, that's fine. That that looks like a good place for a library. Um, and there are other things where I'm unsure whether it's just my lack of archival material or whether Reagan genuinely was happy to, to defer on a lot of things. Because then in other ways, um, he appointed an official biographer and wanted to give him, Edmund Morris, um, special privileged access to Reagan. He agreed to meet with him once a month. He could meet with Nancy once a month. He got to go to Camp David. He got to fly around on Air Force One um, because he wanted a, an official biography to be written within 10 years of leaving office. So Now, the, the, the biography he got, and it's been a long time since I've read it, was, it's Dutch, right? It's, the yeah. bi- it's a weird biography. Do you I, want to talk about Dutch? Cause I, think I found it very... Upsetting. Um, yeah, it's upsetting. Okay. I, That's thought, probably not what Reagan or uh, Morris No, well, I couldn't finish it, but the thought of someone having such privileged access to the president, they've already won the Pulitzer Prize, and they've been asked, commissioned to write this biography. No one else will ever get that access again. And, like, f- the, the idea of having this sort of fictional narrator that follows Reagan around, I could almost get on board with, but the fictional footnotes was where I drew the line, because no one can go back and look at any of that. Like, it, the footnotes are useless. If you ever wanted to actually go back and, you know, check sources, it's like, well, some of them don't actually exist because he made up fictional footnotes to go along with the fictional narrator. And then when the fictional narrator, there's a bit, I think, where he goes, like, on a date with Reagan's college girlfriend, and I just found it really <laughs> strange. Um. So, no, I, I know that he said that Reagan was a... A complicated guy, and he he deserved a, a really sort of quirkier out there biography to really capture the essence of Reagan. But as a researcher, I was very disappointed. So so, that's very interesting. What do you think is the best biography of Reagan? If if you're going to recommend one to our listeners, um oh, Lou Cannon's um President Reagan: The Rule of a Lifetime is, is older, but it's still one of my. Favorite. You and Morgan's recent one in HW Brands, I think, are both good sort of single volume biographies. Um, but the Canon one is the one I go back to for the level of detail. Because Canon, um, I was going to say followed Reagan around, but that makes him sound really creepy. Uh, Canon, <laughs> he worked for the Washington Post, and he was the sort of Washington Post correspondent who was in the press corps. And so he covered Reagan from his governorship right the way. He through. really knows California politics in that book, if I give. Yeah, if, if I think serves. so. Um, this team that Reagan had that were sort of uh, trying to figure out how to preserve his legacy I mean memory and legacy is part about remembering stuff but it's also partially about 
forgetting stuff, either consciously or unconsciously. What do they want people to forget about Reagan? Iran-Contra. <laughs> That's a good um, So the project, or at least my PhD, sort of starts in 19, late 86, early 87. The um, midterm has gone very badly for them. Uh, Reagan had had surgery, uh, which had revived sort of speculation about his ill health, and then Iran-Contra was going on. And they thought, oh, we've got, you know, two years to salvage his image before he becomes remembered as this person who is too old to be president and who couldn't be trusted and all this sort of speculation that was going on around Iran-Contra. So they're like, okay, what do we really want him to be remembered for? And so I guess by extension, they didn't want him to be remembered for being old or Iran-Contra. How do they handle Iran-Contra? So, so, because that's obviously not something you can just set aside. It's a big story in the second term so how how do they handle it at the reagan museum if you can remember that but also how do his the people trying to manage his legacy handle it um at the museum i'm not sure if they originally had an exhibit on it um that might be incorrect but i know like the nixon museum didn't have anything on watergate when it opened Mm. um i think they may have either glossed over or had a very short um sort of one wall panel type exhibition on it now they have it but i don't think it's in with the chronology of the rest of the museum which is really strange they sort of put it <laughs> off in a corner um within the administration i mean i find it strange sometimes that he doesn't acknowledge it in those sort of speeches he gives or he does acknowledge it obviously at the time but when they're talking about sort of his summing up of the administration he glosses over it it's very rarely mentioned in fact to the point that when i saw it mentioned in um, uh, a booklet that they prepared to be distributed among sort of high-profile Republicans. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. They've actually mentioned around contract because normally they try to pretend it didn't happen, or it feels like they're pretending it didn't happen. And what, what was the space? So in that, I don't know whether it appears in that oh. binder you spoke about earlier, the singing from the same hymn sheet. What's the hymn on around contract? What, what, um, what's, what, what's the argument they try to make? The, okay, so the, the big binder, the Reagan record, was distilled into this shorter thing called Promises Made, Promises Kept, right. um, which is this like glossy print, like 40-page thing, and it was given out to uh, Republicans who went to the, the inauguration, like the Bush inauguration, um, and they basically tried to spin it just that it showed Reagan's good leadership, that he had... Um, Sort of, he'd seen the issue and he'd addressed it confidently and moved on swiftly and he didn't let it get him down, sort of thing. I think was there, was their spin. I would have to look, but I remember thinking it was very strange. Um, it was a real stretch to be like, oh well, you know, Iran Contra really showed Reagan was a great leader because really the big deal was that a lot of people thought that it showed that Reagan wasn't in control of his own White House. Um, so what's the takeaway from your thesis, Sarah? What's, what's the argument? Um, I'm still pinning it down, I think, but I sort of touched on some of it. I would like to make the argument that the administration was doing sort of new and innovative things and thinking about legacy in new and interesting ways and using resources um, in ways that former presidents hadn't. And that's not to say other presidents haven't cared about their legacies. I mean, obviously, you know... George Washington had a farewell address, so like delivering a farewell address is not that unusual, but I think the extent to which Reagan was deployed um, in the 1988 elections, um, sort of trying to capitalise on his popularity 
really reflects that the Reagan people were very conscious of the historical moment they were living through. And there were definitely people in the White House who thought this could be the end of sort of New Deal liberalism and we're ushering in this new age of Reagan republicanism. Um, and they wanted to, like, they were aware of that and they were really trying to make the most of it. And how successful they were, I'm not sure. Um, but I think, yeah, drawing on sort of broader things, it reflects the sort of changing nature of the relationship between the presidency and the press and the public, um, the ways that they sort of, yeah, interacted with the press corps and those sorts of things. Interesting. I mean, why, I think if one considers other presidents' attempts to manage their legacies, if there's one conclusion, is it's impossible to do. So, so the, they they might do it for a little while, especially while they're still alive and able to interact. And I think he, I think your observation earlier that Reagan didn't have an active post presidency where he was out there doing stuff hmm. probably made 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 the shelf life for his version of his legacy relatively short. Whereas, you know, you take look at the likes of. George George W. Bush or Obama or Clinton, they're out there and they're you know, they're, they're legacy shaping by their very presence and their appearances and what they do and what they don't do. But I think that it's a to some extent it's quixotic because they can't control their legacy for for long, especially as things get they get declassified and so on. What what does this tell us about the modern Republican Party? So we we see the Republican Party. Um, well, critics of the modern Republican Party say, yeah, it all goes back to Reagan. It starts with, you know, the rot started there. Um, and this is where your youth is a good thing, according to that person. They're probably right. You're not necessarily invested in that narrative. Admirers of the contemporary Republican Party say, yep, we're Reagan's children. We're all, you know, and your example from 2016, they're, they're scrapping for, for Reagan's legacy. They're all claiming it. Are there any lessons for the modern Republican Party in all this, do you think? I wish I had them. I think they wish they had them as well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think Trump complicates things. Um, where do they... <laughs> That's a true statement, yes. But, I mean, of the people who were sort of harking back to Reagan, Trump wasn't, even though he used Make America Great Again as mm. his campaign. So he maintained that that was an accident, um, that he wasn't actively trying to tie himself to Reagan, which is bizarre because obviously then Trump became president um so honestly i i don't know um i think there are a lot of people in the republican party who wish they knew or had answers to those questions it's a good question but i i prefer my republicans from the 80s i i get them <laughs> yeah i mean, the I mean reagan was popular in 1984 he won in a landslide in 84 i mean i can see why they harken back to that. But, but i'm wondering how well reagan would fit into the republican party of today i think the sort of the the ultra-orthodoxy, if that's the right framing for it, within the Republican Party today, I don't think Reagan always fit into that. I think, you know, there were times when Reagan increased taxes, you know, and, and that's an anathema of the Republican Party today. There were times when Reagan worked with Democrats. Yeah, and some famous drinks with Tip O'Neill. Exactly, you know, and, and seemed to actually have sort of genuine relationships with, with Democrats. Uh, and Reagan at one point even was a Democrat when he was a young man. So, you know, these kinds of things, you know, would he have a place in the Republican Party today? Um, I think Reagan's pragmatism, um, you've given some of the examples, is something that modern Republicans do tend to forget. Um, 
yeah, it's one of the things I think the Ewan Morgan Reagan biography sort of gets at that. He said, actually, um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me repeating him saying this, that he liked Reagan more after he'd written a biography of him than he did um, when he started writing the biography. Um, he had a lot more respect for him than he expected to. Um, and I think because of, you know, appreciating that actually he wasn't as hardline as people nowadays like to think that he was. But equally, I mean, I hear people say, oh, well, he wouldn't have fitted into the modern Republican Party. And then you, I don't know. I don't want to say anything to... Um, derogatory about the modern Republican Party or certain wings of the modern Republican Party but I think there's definitely some issues where he would still fit in just fine. Hmm. Well and that very pragmatism might mean that he you know he was politically astute and he might read the, the, the read the room temperature and say okay this is where I need to be. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah I mean like the willingness to pay lip service to you know the new Christian right and that sort of thing not because he necessarily believed it but it was the politically astute thing to do to keep them on site to pay lip service to school prayer and abortion or um, making abortion illegal those sorts of issues um, and I remember being absolutely mind blown at the Reagan library back in undergrad looking at a folder I was looking for folders on Grenada and I went a folder too far to gay rights mm. and thought oh interesting I wonder what they thought um and it was an advisor basically saying, well, we should just quarantine all the gay people if we want to get rid of the AIDS crisis. And I remember just thinking, this is only like, what, 35 years ago that they're saying things like this? And I was so taken aback. And yeah, I sometimes forget how yeah. far right socially or how far right the administration was on some social issues. Yeah, well, and much of the country was on that particular yeah. issue. You know, one of the great failings of the Reagan administration was they didn't mention the word AIDS until tens of thousands of Americans had died of the disease, uh, in part because of who it was that was dying of the disease. And, and yeah, it's a very different era. So you're finishing this, hopefully, in the coming academic year? Uh, I'm, I'm planning to. I'm good, hoping to. Good, good, excellent. And you're conducting interviews, right? You said that before we went on the air, so that's, yeah. that's the plan. So, so that's I'm, a new challenge, I suppose. It is, yeah. I'm getting one of these recorder things like you guys have got from the library, um, just in case my sort of computer recordings fail. Cause mm. Zoom is great. It makes an, like an auto-generated transcript, so I don't have to listen to yeah. myself. Um, so that's handy. So yeah, I'll be doing some, some interviews, and then hopefully I'll have a first draft in the not too distant future. Excellent. So, and this is a really unfair question mm -hmm. to ask a PhD student, so I apologize in advance, but um, <laughs> He's gonna ask it anyway. what's your next project in the sense of, <laughs> do you expect to continue to write on the Republican Party? Would you go in a different direction? I mean, you're, you're a student, and you, you're, you've got real expertise in modern American politics, the history of modern American politics. You could do what you want, but I'm just wondering. Uh, I mean, that makes the assumption that I'm staying in academia, which I am... <laughs> Don't know if I will, um, and I don't have any sort of fixed next big project idea. Um, That's fine, it's an unfair question. No, I, I was just going to say, this is, Robert, my supervisor, would be horrified, but one of my, like, side interests is um, American country music and the Republican Party. <laughs> um, but That's a great topic. I, yeah, I think that was living in Virginia for a year. I got really into country music. 
Um, and actually, I was surprised at how much scholarship there is on um, conservatism and um, in music, but I have absolutely no expertise in the sort of music side of anything. Um, but if I could do a sort of fun side project, it would be on something like that. I think. That sounds exciting. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like a really good project. Now, but I don't think Robert could supervise it. It would force him to listen to Well, me. at that point, you'll be ha- you, you already have your PhD and you can do whatever you want. want. Right. You, know, you mentioned the, the, the going to the Reagan Library and, 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 or the pandemic's effects on your research. What, what steps did you take to sort of mitigate those if you were able to mitigate those? And like what, what, what effect did, has the past few years had on, on the whole project and on your sort of thinking about it? Um, well, I haven't changed the structure of the project. I have had to rely a lot more on newspapers than I expected to do. I designed the project because I really love that a lot of it's not digitized and so it would involve a lot of in-person archive work and that's why I was going for seven months and I should have been at the Library of Congress and then the Bush Library and then the Hoover Institution and then the Ford Library, the Nixon Library and the Reagan Libraries. So I had a lot of archive work planned. Um, at the moment the main archive that I want has just closed again um, oh, so my copy strange. order is pending. They were working on making copies for me um, and now it's closed indefinitely because of COVID case numbers. So, um, But I mean, in the grand scheme of, you know, COVID, not having access to archives is not the worst. It's just been, um, yeah, I've had to eke out the material that I got in 2019 a lot more than I expected, I think, too. Um, and being one of the, I think, two PhD students who had to shield made mm. things weird. Um, I even when the libraries reopened in the UK last summer in awesome, I wasn't supposed to go into them, which was really weird. I think the, 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 we're only going to figure out the effect that, that this pandemic has had. I mean, the pandemic has awful effects on everything, but the specific knock-on effects on research, I think we're not going to totally figure it out for a few more years to see all the things that didn't get didn't happen or happened differently because of the pandemic. Well, and they're uneven because yes, it, it, be sure. depending on where you were in, in a project, if, if what you needed was time to write and your, all your research was done, then for, for people in that circumstance, yeah. actually and if could you didn't, be And if you didn't have carrying obligations. Yeah, then of course. Sure. But, but on the other hand, but if you were at the archival stage, then as you were, it's very, very... I should say, though, um, the archivists I have worked with, um, Amy at the Reagan Library has been phenomenal um, in going through boxes for me, because when I'm not a PhD student, I work in the National Library of Scotland, doing the sort of other side of helping researchers with copy orders because they can't travel to Edinburgh. Um, And so, yeah, as someone who's been on that side of the desk, we always really appreciate it when the researchers actually thank us for our efforts in, like, going around the stacks and getting things for them and reading and phoning them up and reading things out to them. To oh, you great. read things out to people? Only, that's great. Only once because I was like, I don't think this is what you want and I don't want to charge you £12.60 for a copy of it. Oh, okay. But if I can speak to you on the phone and describe it to you. Right. Um, I, I would just agree with that 100%. Arch- archivists have been amazing and, and archives and libraries have done just amazing work trying to work around the pandemic and help people and to, I think to be productive. Was it the AHA who released that statement they have subsequently had to retract mm. complaining about the National Archives being closed and the archivists were not impressed? Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, I think it's uh, time for last drops. So as, uh, as our guest there, what would you like to recommend to people? 
Um, I would recommend a book that's come out in the last couple of months. It's called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan by Karen Tumulty. Um, I met Karen that first trip I had to the Reagan Library when she was researching for the book. Um, I had no idea who she was and she was super nice to me and had lunch with me and I really appreciated it as the token student in the reading room. And so it's nice to see that book out in the real world now. Cool. The other reason that you, one of the things we've lost with archive visits, because you meet people, you yeah. meet people yeah. and you establish connections and friendships that can last decades. Um, so hopefully that will resume too. We need to have like virtual research rooms or like in, in, in a virtual archive and there's somebody at the desk next to you can even poke at them. But it's, it's the <laughs> it's ra- like but it's the random encounters exactly. you know, with people who aren't necessarily specialists in your particular subfield that yes. are really the valuable ones when you're doing that. Oh, that's great. Great. Frank, what you got? I want to recommend a new book by Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy um, called The Illimitable... Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University. It's just been published by the University of Virginia Press. Andrew's a friend uh, and a very good scholar, and he, he directs the library. In fact, he direct, it's the Presidential Library for Jefferson at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. This book is certainly in dialogue with Alan Taylor's recent book on Jefferson and the founding of the University of Virginia, and in fact, it, it, when I say dialogue, I think they take diametrically opposed views about this. Oh, excellent! Okay, it's very, very interesting. And it also, I'll say, and I say this as a as a University of Virginia Press uh, author and person who's published books with them, uh, the production values on this book are great. It's it's a beautiful book, and it's also it's an important book, and, and it's from, from Andrew. So I want to recommend that to people. What about you, David? Uh, well, you guys are recommending heady books. I'm going to recommend a TV show that I'm excited about watching coming out next week. Uh, it's called Reservation Dogs. It's, oh, it's, I've heard about this. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it premiered in the U.S. a few months ago, maybe last year. Uh, but it's it's a, a show about, about four Native American teenagers in Oklahoma. Uh, but one of the sort of remarkable things about it, I mean, I've heard it's very good. Uh, but to watch, but one of the remarkable things about it, it's the first show to sort of star Native American actors and have an entirely indigenous uh, production team. Um, so, and it's gotten very good reviews in the U.S., both by sort of the, the mainstream press and by, by the Native American press. So they say it's a, you know, a, a revealing look at, at, at life on a reservation, but also fun and interesting to watch. So... I'm excited about that. How can people in the UK see it, David? Uh, I believe if you're in the US, it's on Hulu. I believe if you're in the UK, it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. Oh, there he goes again. Mr. Posh with his Disney+. Plus. Frank, you can come over to my place. We can watch it together. We'll make popcorn. It'll be great if you want. I'm a man of the people watching Netflix. <laughs> Sarah, thank you very yes, much. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me on. To Ron and Nancy, yes. Okay, there you go. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.